1: His eyes soften as he watches Yezi sing a Chinese folk song with subtle feminine movements. The room fills with laughter when Ellie Wong unabashedly enacts her vulgar bodily desires. What is the affect created through these performances? At different localities and temporalities, an actress and a comedian, Tan Wei, and Ellie Wong embody ever-failing meaning of Chineseness, offering themselves for both consumption and survival. In Vulgar Beauty, Mila Zuo revaluates beauty to understand how it creates a feeling of Chinese-ness, engendering a messy world of relationalities that challenge a stable binary of national identity. Using Wei Dao, which escapes meaning in English as flavor and style of a person, object, or environment, Zhuo challenges the Cartesian epistemology, dividing mind-body and vision-hearing. Through in-depth analysis of films and shows, Zhuo asks how five flavors of Chinese medicine, bitter, salty, pungent, sweet, and sour, become, quote, modalities of vulgar beauty. Vulgar, often tied to the non-Western and the working-class bodies, become a means to complicate the relations between objecthood and subjecthood embodied in Chinese beauty. I am pleased to welcome Professor Mila Zhu today at the New Books Network in Gender Studies to talk about her new work, Vulgar Beauty, Acting Chinese and Global Sensorium. Mila, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, it is such a pleasure to have you, and I'm so excited to talk about your new book. Uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book?
2: Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, prior to this, I taught at Oregon State University in Corvallis. I, um, I received my PhD in cinema and media studies at UCLA and i came to write this book i guess um it started in graduate school when i really wanted to grapple with cinematic identification and and understand how we might construct and understand our social selves in relation to popular images so film spectators are always kind of in, engaged in a kind of splitting of perceptual attention you know sort of between absence and presence and when you think about with the regard to about the self and the other but i think there's a further dimension to this when we consider the racialization and sexualization of subjects so the splitting and the suturing with the cinematic image um also occurs with an awareness of racialized, sexualized difference. And that's what I'm really interested in. So in my early academic career, I sought out transnational Chinese cinemas um, and I wanted to interrogate also at the same time, Western depictions of Chinese femininity. In my dissertation, I looked at the ways in which Chinese femininity converged with embodied ideas of sexuality, health and well-being in in these transnational cinemas but my book um in some ways continues this line of inquiry but is more i think rooted in theoretical and philosophical concepts to think about the affective phenomenon of beauty and its performative implications across different social geopolitical and cultural contexts
1: yeah yeah, um, thank you so much for um sharing with us the genealogy of your research. And I think one of the things that I most identified with when I was reading your book was that how um you know in a way you also shared your personal story as well, especially with the first chapter on Gong Li and how your um, uh, you know, on compared you to Gong Li, um, and you know, in thinking about yeah, this like racialized and like sexualized depiction, um, and you know, the affect created uh, through that, um, and you know, its relations to geopolitical and historical factors, which I just found really interesting. So I'm really excited to talk about that. I think, uh, more later when we talk about different chapters, but. First, I wanted to go over some key terms as a context for the audience. Um, can you define for us acting Chinese and vulgar beauty? Yes. So
2: acting Chinese is one of the terms that I use when I'm working within um, star studies, thinking about the ways in which... Start, uh, start images circulate as aspirational images, right? Um, both in terms of cons- and conspicuous consumption, um, as has been written about, but also in kind of the minute gestural ways that we understand what it means to be a person, what it means to be a human, um, and what it means to have charm and charisma as people. And so when I'm thinking about acting Chinese, I'm thinking about the social performativity of an assumed or projected racial, ethnic, or cultural identity. And I love what you said that um, this always failing meaning of Chineseness, um, because I'm also taking ness as an unstable or flexible signifier, Um, not least because of the very fraught ways in which we, um, of course, approach the geopolitical, cultural, linguistic diversities and contestations within the so-called identity. Um, And so I want to, I'm qualifying the ways I'm addressing this identity with the idea of acting um, to suggest that what these on-screen performances reveal to us is that there's a pretense and a play in this identity. That identity is not a static object, even as there are stereotypes and archetypes that seek to uh, rigidify such an identity within a given racial ethnic identity. But Acting Chinese, I think, honors both the filmic component of what I'm thinking about here, with regard to global Chinese uh, women film stars, as well as the everyday social performativity of Chinese subjects. Um, and f- as a diasporic subject in particular, um, you know, I wonder that the vacillations and disparities between the two, you know, um, self imposed identity or one that's projected by others. Um, these are keenly kind of felt in in a, in, in an estranging way. Um, The other part of acting Chinese is that I'm looking at, um, of course, kind of voluntary behaviors. Um, But in particular, what I want to look at is the minor act, the way that somebody holds their body, their gaze, the clothing that they wear, how they, touch their hair, these really small movements. Um, These work in concert with the environment, the objects that surround these bodies, they're all taken in as an entire scene of that person. Um, So right, when I talk about Gong Li, it's like this fire that burns behind her conveys this kind of interiority of bitter ressentiment. Or, you know, in the sweet chapter, I talk about the pitter-patter of rain on the roof. It mimics this, um, Vivian Xu is crying in the scene, these campy, almost crocodile tears. And you see this, this mimicry or this, um, the way in which the environment is also part of the performance, right? And, and this is what I want to be attuned to when I'm thinking about acting Chinese. Um, um, and I think, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've talked for so long. Did you ask also about vulgar beauty as a concept?
1: Yeah, yeah, also about vulgar beauty as well,
2: yeah. Okay, Um. so vulgar beauty then is a concept that I offer as a means to address this specific racialized charisma that I'm thinking about with Chinese or Asian women in particular. So with on vulgarity, I am first... I want to discuss and un- undo sort of the ocular centrisms of Western epistemologies of continental philosophy and film studies. Vision and hearing have long been privileged as dominant ways of knowing, right? While taste and scent and touch are were degraded as primitive and or feminine sensorial ways of, of knowing, lesser ways of knowing. Um, but we can also think about this idea of the psychoanalytic notion of part objects, which involve fragments of the body that lack a specular image. And through those, um, you know, like Carol Maver connects scent with the body of the mother. And she talks about why scent has been marginalized in Freudian conceptions. Um, but in recent decades, there's, there's really a turn towards thinking about embodiment in a more holistic way. And in film studies, in sensing cinema through a kind of synesthesia where um, you are consuming in every sensorial register as you're viewing a film, hearing a film. And I'm building off of the work by Vivian Sobchak, Laura E. Marks, Jennifer Barker, among others. So vulgar beauty for me is a way to recognize the ways in which affects or these kinds of part objects, partial objects emerged the lower sensorium and particularly through taste to structure the ways in which we encounter women stars. Each of whom I suggest becomes famous because of a particular way that their embodied performativity um, seems to reflect a kind of social rupture Um, So ultimately, I'm rehabilitating vulgarity, I'm rehabilitating the lower sensorium to try to make sense of beauty um, through these different flavors. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your really beautiful elucidation of the two concepts. And uh, I think both just really spoke to me and to my own research interest uh, regarding acting Chinese uh, and thinking about flexible signifier. Uh, I wonder if you watched um, uh, Kim's Convenience. (laughs) Uh,
2: You know, I've only seen a little uh, bit of the first episode. I Yeah. Can you tell me about it?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I I was just thinking a lot about the this show, and in a way, like mixed reception, especially from Korean immigrant community, like an older Korean immigrant community. Especially, my mom actually found this show to be kind of insulting. Um, in its um, you know um depiction of um, Korean Americans as well as their accent um, because she thought that it was actually quite inaccurate and it was, you know, uh, most of the characters were actually played by Korean Americans uh, who uh, spoke like quote-unquote like perfect English. Also thinking, uh, and then later, um, Shima Liu talked about how um even though the writer was technically Korean-American, actually, most of the producers were white. Um, So kind of thinking about, um, in a way, you know, like, uh, we kind of want to acknowledge, like, uh, the flexible signifier, but also, like, the interplay between maybe, like, the dominant, in a way, mainstream reception versus, like, the immigrant, uh, you know, reception and the way that all uh, these depictions felt, like, really jarring, uh, because I mean, they were acting Korean, uh, but it was like constantly failing them uh, was really interesting for me. Um, and- um, and I also loved what you said about the environment as well, um, uh, you know, and then how these like uh, voluntary behaviors and minor acts that, you know, are really like connected to the interaction with the objects and the environment. And that made me uh, actually think a lot about it. Oh, And then someone that you also talk about a lot um uh Chang Cheng and her book on ornamentalism. Um so I actually wanted to ask you whether um, you know, uh, you could talk more about um abject epistemology and how you know you kind of integrate this like theory by Sedgwick on vulgar as reparative practices to in a way rethink what it means to be an object and objecthood
2: yes um So, yeah, Eve Sedgwick uh, writes beautifully about um, reparative or weak theory against the currents of strong paranoid hermeneutics. And I love what she says. There's a line about camp and the overattachment to fragmentary marginal waste uh, leftovers. and how that produces new lines of thinking and embracing and being attuned to the object. Um, Susan Sontag also relates camp to good digestion <laughs> and says that um, without it, a man of good taste might, might be chronically frustrated <laughs> or constipated. Um, and so it's really interesting that, and and these I connect very much with with taste and with kind of Um, vulgar attachments so not only for example um we brought up or you brought up ali wong so ali wong in a very straightforward way talks about her bodily waste she talks about shitting and her vaginal discharge and all of this kind of um vulgar um all of these, what might be deemed vulgar topics, but she, so, so um, I kind of unpack that. I kind of rehabilitate that in terms of thinking through the carnivalesque as a subversive, uh, subversive kinds of um, embodiments. So there's one way where I'm dealing with the abject and, and the vulgar in a very literal way, I guess, but I'm also thinking about abject epistemologies in the sense that i'm I'm sort of holding up sensorial um, epistemologies and vernacular understandings and elevating to them to the status of philosophy so um, these kind of subjugated knowledges, um, which is a word that Foucault uses um, is related to what I call the abject because they've been excluded from dominant uh, hegemonic um, modes of knowledge uh, knowledge production. Um, but I want to think through these. I, I, I'm not revering any mode above any other, but I'm interested in their interrelationality and how these discourses, how these multiple ways of, how these multiple epistemologies are speaking to each other across time, across different languages, across different cultures. So in this way, I think by rehabilitating the abject, I can see how my work could sit alongside other work that critically interrogates objecthood, um, like Anne ellen Chang's work, um, which I'm also really inspired by and and find really useful. Her her book Ornamentalism thinks about the ways in which Asiatic femininity has long been conflated with synthetic objecthood, and she offers quite an interesting take on object-oriented ontology, which is otherwise really dominated by universalist claims that um, doesn't really pay attention to identity and certainly seems to brush aside racial identity, for example. And she really um, puts pressure, right, on that philosophical mode of thinking by introducing the idea of race and femininity. And so for me, I also want to trouble these binaries of subject and object I think that taste, by um, um, by thinking about it as this transcendent affective quality, and in particular, by thinking about different flavors as different experiential objects that we commune with um, when we engage with mediated bodies, that this is another way to bring are thinking towards objecthood and an objectivity and intersubjectivity, interobjectivity together.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I loved what you said about how your book is we, you know, thinking about abject epistemology as sensorial and in a way bringing these uh, lesser or partial knowledges as they were called, uh such as like taste, scent, um feeling to the status of philosophy. Like I thought that it was really beautifully done in the book. And um also I think you reflect on uh, in the introduction uh, when you quote uh, Foucault and you know what he says about subjugated knowledges and how you know it's important to not just in a way simply then valorize subjugated knowledges um, but rather you know really think about like why and how, you know, we're, uh, you know, utilizing some of the insights and, uh, you know, f- uh, for your book in particular, you know, you're engaging with Chinese concepts, um, such as dao and uh, Sajiao, like I don't speak Chinese, so I'm sure that I am butchering the pronunciation, um, but uh, I also wanted to ask you uh, you know why you decided to use um you know these two concepts um and also when we think about translation you know because um, like translation is often slippery and you know that is actually part of your work as well right in terms of thinking about acting chinese the slipperiness of signifier you know that's also kind of embodied in the translational work that is being done um, so yeah I wanted to ask you you know why you decided to use the concept the way down, and and also you know what you think about like um translation and how the slipperiness applies in your own work
2: yes thank you for those beautiful questions um so I, I guess I felt that we were missing frames and we were missing language through which to really unpack the phenomena of beauty, which I argue is an elusive object, even as it asserts itself upon us with a kind of immediacy and even a kind of shock of um, the signified or the real. Um, and aesthetic theory seems really uncomfortable with beauty. I'm um, just thinking about a, a sort of Kantian genealogy um, you know, anything that pleases is a dumb object and it's not really valuable as an object for contemplation. Uh, and there's a kind of uh, binary between beauty and, and sublime. Um, but Kant still insists that there's this universal quality about beauty. And um, so I wanted to kind of trouble some of these ideas while making a distinction, uh, sort of cultural distinction, but also a distinction between charm and charisma. Charm, I argue, is pleasing, and it attempts to recede from view. I analogize this with sweetness. But charisma is forceful, and it's more insistent. It's more like the bad tastes that I deal with, and therefore aligns more with what I'm thinking about with, with vulgar beauty. Um, and so... It's, it's, it's a complex subject, but I'm introducing flavor as a way to kind of um, deal with kind of the discomfort and to give us more language in aesthetic theory, um, to give us more language about embodied beauty. Um, otherwise, you know, from a, from a fu- strictly Foucaultian point of view, bu- beauty is part of a biopolitical regime that oppresses us, right? It's unevenly, unfairly distributed. And all of this might be true, absolutely, but what my book wants to think through is this kind of also this, this absolute power that beauty has on us. Um, a priori to its social and cultural meanings, even as later we do attach cultural, racialized, sexualized meanings. Um, and so for me, getting to weidang, getting to flavor as an analytic helps me think about these different affective chords of beauty, um, while not dismissing the impact, um, but it, it gives us a little bit more nuance. And so I stumbled across Wei Dao when I came across a passage in a Chinese book that talked about Zhang Mo's first impression of Gong Li. So he was a director that she was involved with, both professionally and personally. Um, he described, he said he cast her because of her Wei Dao, which he described as a bitter, spicy kind of personality. And I was really intrigued by this. Um, and my parents also um, used used this term before to talk about personality, to talk about style. And I, I couldn't find, um, you know, an exact English translation. There isn't a one-to-one correspondence here. Um, and so I found that thinking about flavor you know, at first I was like, oh no, thinking about flavors, that's too gimmicky. But when I started looking more into Chinese, um, traditional Chinese medicine and thinking about Chinese philosophy and thinking about cosmologies, um, it gave me this very capacious framework when um, basically you can think about flavors as having lateral relationships with other phenomena, events and objects. And what it allows me to think about is not only the performativity, you know, a bitter performance, but it allows me also to think about on the the spectator side as well, the impact of, of that affect. And these five flavors in Chinese medicine and in Chinese food are intended to treat various symptoms. So you might eat bitterness to treat a bitter ailment in the heart. So it's kind of interesting to think about flavorful beauty as acting as a kind of cultural medicine or an antidote to address a social or political or or historical ailment as well. And I just thought that was kind of a rich way to get us past um, a kind of either universalist, categorical uh, idea of beauty or to to condemn um, the biopolitics of beauty.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was really beautifully said. And I especially love how in a way, you you bring the analogy of, you know, five flavors um, being used to treat, like, various symptoms as, like, cultural healing um, to, in a way, complicate this no- notion of beauty as, like, bi- biopolitical, too. um So, kind of expanding that framework. And, you know, I'm not really, like, a Japan scholar, so, you know, this is kind of more of a lay knowledge, but, uh, you know, uh, what you were saying about, uh, you know, uh, beauty was also making me think about how, in Japanese, the word kawaii you know which is used so often um is not only about cuteness but then also about vulgarity as well because uh, kawaii also actually means like grotesque uh, as well um you know uh, japanese people then you know think about the grotesque as like cute and like its appeal through like many senses and i was also kind of reading about how um blackened teeth that uh, you know like twisted blackened teeth used to be considered like kawaii in japan as well so also kind of like thinking about how that invokes like you know like different senses maybe um even though i don't really know about this in a scholarly level but this is like making me you know like connect to like these like different conceptions of beauty and how that in a way really challenges like the kantian notion of you know beauty yeah uh, so it's really really interesting um and then I wanted to then now kind of, uh, now that we were able to kind of set the framework for uh, the audience about the book and like some of the main, uh, you know, terminologies and uh, theoretical frameworks that were used uh, in this book, I kind of wanted to now then really go into the analysis part because, you know, that's really fun. That, uh, that part is really fun. So, you know, you define all uh, the five flavors in Chinese medicine, bitter, salty, pungent, sweet, and sour, and you look at different Films and shows to talk about it. Um, so we already talked uh, about Gong Li, but I wanted to, you know, further ask you, uh, you know, whether you'd like to share with the audience about, uh, you know, Gong Li and why you describe her as in bitter beauty.
2: Sure, sure. So, um, so bitterness. Uh, uh, I'm really looking not only at the kind of Chinese traditional medicinal connotations. Uh, the what I suggested earlier, there's a kind of homeopathic logic that like cures like. But Deleuze, when he talks about Nietzsche, is also points out that Nietzsche, in his writing about bitterness and suffering, and and I I call him like the prime philosopher of of bitterness in the West. Um, he's also suggesting something similar, which I find really interesting. That you know bitterness cures bitterness. That Bitterness will treat bitterness, and so with Gong Li, she's the first, uh, she's the first global film star after Mao's death in in the post Mao era, and she really embodies a bitter reckoning with uh, China's past, Um, in particular the kind of um, recent memories of the Cultural Revolution, some of which gets displaced onto pre-revolutionary feudal times as. uh, in a kind of anal- uh, anal- uh, analogy or um uh, in a way to displace the criticism i guess um so i'm 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 tracking in particular um her work with zhang Yimou. of course Zhang is the one who points out her spicy wei doll and her the this bombast that she has this um the swagger that she has. She often plays the victim in her early career in Zhang's films, and but she does it with such this kind of strength and this eroticized kind of bitterness. So, um, she sensualizes what it means to feel bitter about history, which is really quite beautiful. But then in and then in the Western films though. Um, like a film like Hannibal Rising, we see that her racial flavor takes on kind of different um, different notes. Um, Bill Hooks in her essay, Eating the Other, talks about um, how racial others are used to spice up an otherwise bland, you know, white mainstream dish. Um, and so thinking about this particular film, which is uh, about... The, the famous cinematic cannibal Hannibal Lecter of Silence of the Lambs. Gong, in this film, in this origin story, plays uh, an exotic Japanese woman, and she's said to deodorize the men's traumatic memory of the Holocaust. And so here, there's another reckoning with the past, with a historical trauma. But the bitterness of her raciality seeps through in the... Films attempt to taste her continually, and the the diegetic male characters in particular, w- w- which we see again and again, both want to taste her, and both are are have this anxiety, this this very excessive pleasure in the form of disgust. Um, and then, so there, I you know, I analyze this particular insult about her that reduces her to her genitalia and, and, and talks about this kind of deviant genitalia. It's a very sensorial, uh, and it analogizes her body with these dead pig carcasses that are hanging up in a food st- stall. So the Asian woman here is both odorless and foul and occupying this particular bitterness in, it, in both you know, the, the Chinese and the Western imaginaries.
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: and yeah i loved your analysis and also in a way thinking about you know the translational work that is also happening between um you know the western and the chinese films and also how it you know then really speaks to um this uh, troubling of binary when we think about objecthood um, so uh, biopolitical you know and healing uh you know effect that has in um gong Li is essentializing um you know performances on um, that in a way is about being eaten but then also in a way about like reckoning with the past like i love that you know the complexity that was really shown in this chapter yeah and about uh moving on to um salty part of uh you know your chapter um you know as a uh, you know Korean Canadian who kind of grew up with the you know dominant discourse about uh multiculturalism i also really found this um you know chapter to be very interesting when you talked about uh immigrant materiality and your focus on Maggie Chang and Joan Chen to in a way uh, look at the uneasy consolidation of national identity um can you tell us more about that, you know, this particular chapter and how you talk about immigrant materiality?
2: Sure, sure. So um, with salt, um, I was really intrigued to find material semiotic understandings of the substance in what's called alchemical psychology. So students of Carl Jung, like James Hillman, um, but especially because I found it intriguing that Jungian psychoanalysis has been so overshadowed and eclipsed by Freud and Lacan. It's also a kind of abject epistemology, especially in film studies. Um, But um, yeah, so I really wanted to think through the the ways in which these um, kind of psychoanalysts were thinking about salt. So they're dealing both with their material substance but connecting them to a kind of cosmological understanding but what i um what i found interesting was this idea of um salt as requiring the right dosage and and it being a kind of post bitter state uh and of course we need salt for nerve and muscular functions but we cannot um so we cannot produce it we import it and we it it it's a it's a an object that we bring inside um, nevertheless there is something dubious about saltiness and i talk about like msg as a kind of a cultural stigmatized version of salt um, but there's also you know the kind of coll- colloquialism of taking things with a pinch or a grain of salt um, so it's like imported, but there's also a kind of doubt and suspicion around that. And I feel that with the these kind of immigrant subjects um, in these particular films, that ambivalence is really pronounced. So I'm looking at Irma Vep, Olivier Assay is, is uh, Irma Vep starring Maggie Chung and David Lynch's um, TV series, Twin Peaks, starring Joan Chen. And in both, you know, these women are there in a way to tell these ostensible tales of Western liberal multiculturalism, which is about a kind of racial balance in a, in a post cold war environment. Um, but the suspicion towards these women are also become narrativized. And you see these minor acts of negotiation that these women um Perform to to self preserve, which is of course another connotation of salt, this kind of preservation. Um, and here, I just wanted to return to something that you've you've asked about the translation and, and slipperiness. You know, not only am I thinking about translations across different cultures and and linguistic contexts, but there's a slipperiness that I embrace in in. A, a kind of deconstructive work that is um that i'm embracing here that is between you know the vernacular between the material and between the philosophical and these slippages that i'm um um i find really generative for the, for thinking about flavors so i'm it seems like i'm kind of hopping between you know salt what is the salt like mean, when we taste the salt what is it it's sort of a muted um, uh, substance that exalts existing flavor. And then thinking across to multiculturalism and thinking across uh, about the immigrant subject as um, brought in to to highlight the West's toleration. Look, you know the we've welcomed, we've opened the doors to these women. therefore our multi we have this, healthy sense of uh, a vision of image of multiculturalism but not quite right because there's these little ruptures these these uh, these tensions that erupt through the text and so both of these women in these in these two films engage in um, minor acts of kind of um, deflection, self-preservation um, and they, bring out the the, the the envious connotations as well of of yeah. saltiness. Yeah. Mm, yeah.
1: I just loved what you said about how your work is engaging, you know, not only in translational work across different cultures, but also thinking about the slipperiness between, uh, you know, material, vernacular and philosophical, which I thought that was done really well, you know, when we think about salt as like really material. Object in many ways, but also an embodiment of, you know, what it means to think about the ruptures of multiculturalism um, that, you know, I also really identified with as an immigrant uh, woman. Uh, and when we think about uh, toleration, that actually uh, brings us to pungent because, um, you talk about the films The Crow and Lost Caution to talk about limitation of toleration. And I've actually watched Lost Caution before, uh, back in a long, long time ago. And uh, I re- also really identify with your analysis as well, but, you know, didn't look at it with that framework. So I was really interested to read the analysis. Um, can you tell us more about, you know, pungent bodies and limitation of toleration?
2: Sure, Absolutely. Yeah, so pungency is when the these gaps that we've been talking about in, in liberal multiculturalism become unbearable and, and too transgressive, too too much, right? And so both of these films, *The Crow* and *Less Caution*, they reveal in quite different ways the intolerance of racialized pungent bodies or colonized bodies, um, and and so you know pungency is. Um, like like a bad smell right it emits from one body and enters another against their will even and it highlights the porosity between bodies when um, the divisions become thin and shaky Um, on the other hand pungency like spiciness is something that um we tolerate and perhaps will enjoy with a bit of time, with a bit of training. And so this also relates back to what I say about vulgarity being um, rooted in in temporality, that the vulgar analytic lets us think about time. Um, But in the case of, so in the case of less caution, we see these colonized, um, well, Tongwei's character um, is a spy um, for the resistance group um, in China, resisting against Japanese, uh, the uh, Japanese occupation, um, and we see her, you know, give her body to this, um, you know, this collaborator in the puppet government, and um, we see them transgress um, what are acceptable hospital hospitable boundaries um in these in these darker genres and particularly in how these films deal with sexuality we see that there's an excessive desire um, that also becomes encoded in deviant sexual proclivities but I am connecting sort of the subjugated status of being racialized and being colonized with this kind of Transgressive desire, desirous nature. Um, and so I find it really useful to think with um, a scholar, Braca Ettinger, who's a kind of feminist um, post Lacanian, who's thinking about the womb space um, as this indeterminate space prior to division, where it's about relations without relating. So there is no um, uh, there is no division between the eye or the other. And this is what we see in in a film like Les Caution and the Crow, where these Asian female bodies have become in, overly incorporated um, to the point of, of sexual deviation, whether it's deviation that's traitorous against one's nation, like in Les Caution, or in The Crow, you know, Biling's character has a love affair with her half brother. So it's the incestuous, right. Is again about border crossing. Um, It's pungent, it's unacceptable. It's morally kind of uh, unacceptable. Right. So, um, so these all these kinds of traces of deviant sexuality and, and, and connect back with the racialized pungency of their bodies, which is marked in different ways. You know, a Biling's body is marked by uh, tattoos and this lipstick that that is drawn clownishly uh, around her mouth. You know, you can see that it exceeds the boundaries of her mouth, and that sort of Visually mocks her accented English and malapropisms, um, and similarly with Joan Chen, who uses a lot of malapropisms in Twin Peaks in, in the Salty chapter. Misuse of language is also this kind of se- is seen as kind of this this minor transgression, this pungent act um, yeah. here as well.
1: Yeah 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 thank you so much for that and uh, i think this chapter was like really helpful for me um in thinking about because you know my research um things about uh, you know colonialism uh in korea uh, you know regarding like japan so this is like a historical but uh, i'm thinking kind of about like the rhetoric of that japan of that japanese colonial government incorporated um in order to create like one body with the koreans but then there was also the simultaneous you know, like rejection of, you know, like the dirty, you know, like in a way pungent like Korean bodies. Um, and I think that uh, in many ways, um, you know, like this chapter was, uh, you know, really helpful to like think about, that uh, you know, coloniality in new, you know, ways through like taste, uh, which was really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, you also talk about this too, you know, with your chapter on sweet and um, and how you know that you know really disrupts like neo-colonial desire. Um, can you tell us more about you know uh, the concept of Sa Jiao, um as well as how you know sweet feminine beauty disrupts neocolonial colonial desire?
2: Sure. Um, yes, I'm glad we're returning to saggio because I I had it in my mind, and now we're circling back. Um, so the chapter on sweet is a return to more ambivalent performances of Chinese femininity and what I frame as soft, sweet. So thinking about materiality and and lateral um, um, connections between matter. Um, This chapter deals with feminine sweetness and routes us through the romance narratives where we're looking at the ways in which Taiwanese women stars Xu Qi and Vivian Xu have, have um, performed in these cross-strait, that is, mainland Thai, Taiwanese romance films that are trying to, that, that endorse the ideology of one China and try to um, make that ideology sweet to its audience, right? Um, and, and that is the political notion that Taiwan is part of China, Um and, and that that one day, you know, Taiwan should be reunified with China. That's the kind of one China ideology that is being proposed and pushed in these films. Um, and so what I um, what I see in these films, though, um, is a is a reluctance is is. The ways in which through the minor act, again, we see that these women, even though they seem compliant and the narrative will force a kind of um, compliance upon them, uh, a tenderizing of the body um, and of desire that I see through various ways that the, this is disrupted. So so in a film like The Knot, um, Vivian Xu um, engages in this Uh, flirtation style or this kind of, um, it's often connected with flirtation, but it's also meant to um, connote other forms of behavior related to acting like a, essentially acting like a spoiled child. So yeah, throwing tantrums, pouting, (laughs) public pouting. Um, This is a term that I, I, I I think about right away in the introduction of the book because it's a point of cultural mistranslation in a lot of ways. Um, it is accepted among um, those who are familiar with this performance in, in Chinese contexts. It becomes a, a form of. Uh, of flirtation, right? It summons the partner to play along. Both parties understand that there is a layer of artifice and exaggeration, and it's a it's a quite um, comedic. It's not meant to be comedic, but to any outsider, it can be quite comedic. It's a form of adult romantic play. But Vivian Shu uses this. She draws on this in her role here, where she essentially is pouting, stomping her feet, crying. In a way that um, is not supposed to be there. It's quite subversive because the film is really serious. It's this epic drama about her romance with a mainland communist um, member. But she undoes the seriousness of this film's politics, right? By through this Sajiao, it is. You know, she's producing these crocodile tears and she's she's her acting is so almost Brechtian that it it allows us then to reject the film's um, kind of hardcore ideology with this sweet, soft, you know, um, feminine performance, overly sweet and soft. And I, I love what you also said earlier about Kauai being being. Um, uh, also about the grotesque because uh, CNI also writes about, you know, cute aggressivity. And this is what I locate here in Vivian Su's performance, that there's this aggressive edge to the cuteness, to the hyper cuteness here. Um, and so if you are the one as well, is about a sweetness of the feminine of the of Taiwanese femininity that is um, in her case becomes depression it's so sweet it becomes a depri has a depressive quality um, but you see that the melancholy is this resistance is a form of um, resisting the advances of this mainland Chinese um, suitor and so yeah both of these is, it's about um, in the end, this kind of depression, is kind of it's about grieving for this loss and this in Freudian melancholic conception, it's internalizing that loss of the object, which is you know the Taiwanese nation, in some ways, yeah.
1: right? Yeah, and yeah, I I I really love that and how um. And- in a way it's a simultaneous movement that like depoliticizes um, I mean uh, I guess like undoes like the politics as you put it so well um, but uh, it is also about acknowledging that loss uh, which I also really loved as well like this like indeterminacy like, you know, which I think is, like, the concept that I'm, you know, coming to, like, you know, think about more and more um, as something that is really important to, you know, think about, like, uh, feminist politics, as well as, um, you know, uh, the representational aspect of it. Um, and, you know, speaking of, uh, in a way, cultural or culturally misfit humor. Um, I wanted to move on to, um, Ellie Wong and, you know, like, I loved your analysis, uh, especially because, um, I think it really allowed me to kind of like put into words, like what I felt, you know, when I was watching it. Like Um, I, you know, personally love her show and I was just really struck by like how many times, you know, she talks about shit and, you know, you theorized that, which was just really, really cool. Um, so I wondered whether you could tell us more about, you know, Wong and how her vulgar um, abject performance disrupt quote hegemony conceptualization of gender time and work
2: yeah. sure absolutely yeah in some ways this was the most you know most fun chapter to write because I could discuss comedy at last um, I'm also a big fan of Ali Wong um, I, I love that she wears the abject as a badge of honor her comedy is very much about the vulgar Asian body she's she's half Chinese um, and she rehabilitates the leaky Asian female body as something to revere in and to, to delight in in this carnivalesque way you know in Bakhtin's conception which I earlier mentioned um through profanity obscenity and embracing the body the the body and it's like earthly um, and um earthly qualities and 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 behaviors so by delighting and eating and defecating she really enjoys the pleasures of the body and all its unproductive glory and this this um this is of course compounded by her jokes of being um holding this anti-work position you know she has this facetious critique of feminism right because she's like i don't think we should work um of course, we know that that's sort of um, uh, uh, that's a, that's a kind of ironic statement because we know she's working so hard. So so the 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 word the joke functions on on a different level. But um, she what she is showing us is that we can find complex forms of empowerment in our racial sexualization as Asian American subjects and in our kind of vulgar bodies. Um, and it's the way that she sort of manages and produces these these angry affects that I find most charismatic, you know, like um, in tra- traditional Chinese medicine, um, sour, and this brings us back to the sour modality, the sour rebalances the liver where anger is stored. So sourness is the kind of cultural antidote. And And the sour here for me, the racial sour is offbeat, is quirky. And in being anti-work, finds a, a rhythm, a, an, another rhythm that is that goes off of work time, that goes off of clock time. And th- in, in that itself, it holds a kind of anti-capitalist promise. Um, and we can think about like laughter and the collective atmosphere that laughter induces. It almost, you know... Um, syncopates inhalation and exhalation when we think about the beats of comedy and the punchline and and these kinds of things so there's something there's a kind of atmospheric um, uh, 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 promise of a a collective that's produced through comedy right that could be anti-work unproductive just kind of about enjoyment and pleasure
1: yeah yeah oh which i you know with the pressing you know requirement from capitalist society all around us requiring us to work 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 like which i also just like really appreciated and yeah in her most recent show she talks about you know like she's like i do not want equal pay i want equal pleasure which i thought was actually quite stunningly done
2: yes absolutely
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, and then this is actually reminding me of the recent book that came out called Anti-Suing um, Squad by uh, Preeti Sharma and other uh, feminist um, uh, feminist scholars as well as activists that, um, that actually really talk about, you know, how uh, all of these aunties you know, the immigrant women, you know, produce the basket, um, uh, you know, kind of like it in their homes in order to care. And in a way how even though they were working so hard, it was actually quite anti-capitalist because you know it was about like unpaid labor but kind of subverting that to kind of show how they care about the community as well as um they actually also emphasize laughter as well like the materiality of laughter and how even though it was a really hard time and precarious time for them um you know they embodied that labor of care with laughter you know with sardonic laughter about how negligent the you know state was um so yeah i i um i I thought it was you know also like a really cool connection to labor scholarship as well yeah but um, I've taken up a lot of your time so I wanted to conclude the show with the final question Um, it's the traditional NBN uh, question on you know your next book project but then I also saw that you know you're super cool and you also direct and write you know like shorts and so I wanted to ask you you know like what is your next like book project or like a creative project that you're working on right now
2: yes thank you so much um Mm -hmm. yeah I think so I'm working on several different projects at the moment um one of them is veering more into um a uh, sort of mysterious terrain. So in chapter two, I talk about, I use this term dis- disknowledge. Um, Catherine Egger uses it to talk about alchemical imaginings and disknowledge. But I argue that it is precisely through um, no partially being able to disavow a bad idea that only strengthens the attachment to the bad idea. Um, and so I want to pursue even more so uh, the idea of, of, bad ideas or abject epistemologies by thinking about um, occultic ways of knowing. So I'm actually looking at quite, um, you know, some might think really bizarre uh, modes of knowledge, like astrological thinking, witchcraft, um, uh, w- what people have um written about dreams in a kind of uh, um, alchemical psychological way or in a kind of um, al- alternate kind of um, way of, of, of thinking that these are such, these are so outside of what, what we deem acceptable in a kind of dominant academic mode of thinking that I've really drawn to why they're so compelling and how we can think about occultic um knowledges and abject um epistemologies in thinking about cinema itself as as putting spells upon us as generating uh, a kind of dream worlds um and so this is really quite nascent but it's about bringing in even more sort of subjugated knowledges to to thinking about the ontologies of of cinema um, and then that, I think, is somehow connected, but it it seems that it's um th- this is a tenuous connection for now, but the other project is to look at surveillance aesthetics in art cinema and global art cinemas and to think about ways of looking circumscribed within new technologies uh, and what that means in a philosophical sense. like how does does seeing a long shot, a long take with a steady cam? how can we think about, you know, um, stalking the, 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 the phenomenon of stalking or dreaming alongside or dreaming and thinking in new ways because of these new technological ways of seeing. Um, so that I know, and I understand that sounds a bit kind of abstract and poetic for now, but those are just some, some ideas. Um, and for creative projects, um, I am working on a, a feature script. I've, um, I've made a couple short films that have circulated um, um, on the on the festival circuits, but this feature is tentatively called Mongoloids, and it's a it's a punk coming of age uh, story. I guess it's semi autobiographical, but um, I yeah, I'm interested in genres. It's a, it's also a horror film, so I'm I'm interested in sort of uh, archetypes and horrors, and, and how they connect with collective imaginations and build out from shared myths. So.
1: Yeah, oh, that sounds amazing and how like horror is in many ways also subjugated as well like it's like uh, because I guess horror genre often play on the racialized like the figure of racialized and like uh, subjugated people to invoke this like white fear uh, so that sounds really interesting I really want to watch it and um, so both projects sound really helpful health- you know like wonderful and like uh, I just love your focus on subjugated knowledges uh, but about surveillance camera i actually wonder whether you find this useful so actually in korea it, um the feminist movement like really gained traction because for a while like having a surveillance like secret camera like in the public bathroom to kind of watch women like shit and poop um or really dominant in Korea for a while. So this was, uh, oh, you know, this was an impet- impetus for, like, a national, like, feminist movement against it, you know, because it's, like, obviously really horrific. But uh, kind of, like, um, also, like, thinking about, like, body, like, access. And, like, I, you know, I feel like people still need to analyze, like, why so many men were putting this like secret camera in the public bathroom you know what kind of like satisfaction or pleasure were they kind of gaining from this um I, I i don't know if that really relates to your research but i think you know it's an interesting phenomena that maybe you can like check out as well
2: yeah yeah that's really helpful thank you so much
1: Uh, yeah yeah of course yeah no this was uh, such a generated conversation and I'm really excited for the audience to you know uh, get your book because it was such a fun and like really insightful read and I want to thank you again for being on the show
2: thank you so much for having me it was such a pleasure to speak with you today
1: yeah thank you so much Mila I'll see you